It's a great uh, privilege for me to be able to uh, introduce Liz Lee Smith, who is the associate, uh, the research associate of the Religion and the Practice of Peace, an initiative of Harvard Divinity School. And uh, for that, I give credit to Dean David Hempton, who comes from an area of the world, I should say Northern Ireland, uh, if you didn't recognize the accent, where the practice of peace has been uh, long important. And I think his initiative, his uh, initial address to this school at convocation uh, has been the spur for what will become a major initiative of Harvard Divinity School. So Liz, I'm grateful to you for all that you have done in organizing that and also for introducing us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. I'd like to begin by thanking our panelists, Prita Bansal, Patrice Brodeur, Catherine Laurie, and Melissa Nozell for being with us today. And of course, Professor Diana Eck and colleagues at the Pluralism Project for convening this panel on this important topic. Since our Religions and the Practice of Peace initiative is dedicated to stimulating cross-disciplinary engagement, scholarship, and practice, exploring the roles that religious communities and spiritual resources can play in contemporary conflict transformation, peace building, and leadership, we feel a strong resonance with the topic of this afternoon's panel and more generally with the work of the Pluralism Project. Professor Eck has been an integral contributor to RPP since Dean Hempton founded the initiative in 2014, co-hosting our first monthly colloquium series with Dean Hempton, serving as a member of our advisory board and RPP working group, which include faculty from across the university, and collaborating with us on several colloquium sessions, including the one we'll be co-hosting here tonight after dinner on Speaking the Sick Experience. Professor Eck's knowledge and insights have been crucial for us, and Dean Hempton and all of us in RPP are very grateful for her being part of our thriving project. Personally, it's a delight for me to be part of this anniversary, as one of my vivid memories as a master's student here at HDS was taking Professor Eck's excellent course on world religions and hearing her speak with enthusiasm about a project to map the new religious landscape of America that she'd just launched a year or so before. Since then, so many of us have benefited enormously from the resources that the Pluralism Project has generated on the increasingly multi-religious character of our American community. Professor Eck and the Pluralism Project have also played an important role in moving forward our academic and civic conversations around issues of religious diversity, belonging, and cooperation. As we know all too well from the traumatic events we see daily in news from around the globe and in our own neighborhoods here in the United States, diversity, including religious diversity, can too often be fraught with destructive conflict. But what about religious diversity and human diversity generally as a resource for the practice of peace? Here, the specific understanding of pluralism that Professor Eck has proposed can help us a great deal. While many associate the word pluralism with a weak and even dangerous moral, cultural, and religious relativism, Professor Eck proposes that we understand it instead as an encounter of commitments that involves seeking understanding across lines of difference through active engagement and dialogue. 
This is, of course, not a new concept. In many languages, modalities, and institutional practices, our ancient spiritual traditions have been telling us this for millennia. Indeed, the Quran told us in the seventh century that the very purpose of our human differences is for us to pursue mutual understanding and mutual recognition based on just this kind of committed, active, continuous engagement carried out in awareness of a greater reality that binds us all. The lived practices of cosmopolitanism discernible in all of our traditions are some of our most powerful resources for human harmony and merit our serious attention today. As demanding as it is both as a social practice and a spiritual practice, this kind of encounter is indispensable if we hope to move toward a just and sustainable peace and has now become an urgent necessity for our shared future. Buddhist monk and peace leader Thich Nhat Hanh has pointed out that we've reached a juncture in human history in which our interdependence has become such that the alternatives for our human family are just two, coexistence or co-non-existence. Is it possible for us to be different and even to deeply disagree without sowing divisiveness? Is it possible for us to reach the level of human unity that will enable us all to live in security and to address the momentous challenges presently imperiling our species and our planet without insisting on uniformity? As Dean Hempton emphasized yesterday in his talk at Memorial Church Morning Prayers to mark the International Day of Peace, pursuing these complex ethical and spiritual questions vigorously and collaboratively, not only in theory, but also in practical application, has become an imperative for all of us as global citizens, and not least for universities such as Harvard, major institutions of civil society that play a critical role in forming and empowering those who will shepherd our societies into the future. Therefore, we're delighted today to welcome our four panelists, all graduates of Harvard, to engage us in a conversation on this timely subject. Each of our panelists brings a unique perspective and set of professional experiences, having worked on these issues domestically and internationally with a host of diverse <laughs> colleagues. We'll invite each of them to offer a brief presentation and then to engage in some dialogue with one another. Then we'll open up the conversation to all of you to see what questions you might like to ask them. So to turn now to introduce our distinguished panel. Prita Bansal is a leader whose career has been at the intersection of law, public policy, government, academia, and global business. She's president of Social Emergence Corporation, a not-for-profit corporation focused on empowering human networks at the base of the global socioeconomic pyramid. She's also a lecturer at the MIT Media Lab and a senior advisor at MIT's Laboratory for Social Machines. Previously, Ms. Bansal has served as a global general counsel for HSBC Holdings in London, general counsel and senior policy advisor in the Obama White House in the Office of Management and Budget, partner and practice chair of leading international law firms, Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meager, and Flom in New York City, solicitor general of the state of New York, and chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, a federal government human rights commission focused on religious freedom and interfaith cooperation. She's currently a member of President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, which is focused on addressing poverty and inequality. 
Ms. Bansal is a graduate of Harvard Law School and Harvard Radcliffe College and a former law clerk to U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. She's a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and Chatham House. She served on numerous nonprofit boards, including as a commissioner on New York City Mayor Bloomberg's Bipartisan Election Modernization Task Force, as an advisory committee member of the Clinton Global Initiative, and as a board member of the International Center for Research on Women. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. Dr. Patrice Brodeur is Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair on Islam, Pluralism, and Globalization at the University of Montreal. He's studied interreligious conflict and dialogue, particularly in the context of Israeli-Palestinian relations, and is a longtime affiliate with the Pluralism Project and Senior Advisor to the Kaisid Dialogue Center. Brodeur also works on integrating education about religion, ethics, and culture into secondary school curricula in Quebec. He's co-edited Pluralist Paradigm, Democracy and Religion in the 21st Century, Building the Interfaith Youth Movement Beyond Dialogue to Action, and Religion as a Conversation Starter, Interreligious Dialogue for Peacebuilding in the Balkans, 1990 to 2008. In addition, Dr. Brodeur's work has also included conducting workshops on multiple identities and power dynamics from an inter-worldview perspective in over 50 countries on all continents. In 2010, he received the Interfaith Visionary Award from the Temple of Understanding. Brodeur earned a BA and MA from McGill University and an MA and PhD from Harvard University. Thank you for being here. Catherine Laurie is the Executive for Ecumenical and Interreligious Relations in the Office of the Presiding Bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. She's the editor of the book, For Such a Time as This, Young Adults on the Future of the Church, and consulting editor of the book, Engaging Others Knowing Ourselves, a Lutheran Calling in a Multi-Religious World. From 2012 to 13, she served a two-year term as president of the National Council of Churches of Christ in the USA as the first Lutheran and the youngest woman. From 2003 to 2011, she served as assistant director of the Pluralism Project at Harvard University. Catherine earned her BA in psychology, religion, and women's studies from St. Olaf College in 1999 and her Master of Divinity degree from Harvard Divinity School in 2003. In May 2011, the Graduate Theological Foundation conferred an honorary Doctor of Divinity to Catherine in recognition of her election as President-elect of the National Council of Churches and also in recognition of her contributions to women's interfaith issues and pluralism. Catherine is married to Reverend Tim Seitz and they have four children. Thank you for being with us. And finally, Melissa Nozell is a program specialist for religion and peace building at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Prior to joining USIP in August 2014, Melissa spent seven months in Amman, Jordan, volunteering with several organizations, including New Day Syria and Mercy Corps, to help Syrian refugees through humanitarian aid efforts and mediation. 
She has experience conducting research on religious trends in the US and Middle East through the Jordanian Interfaith Coexistence Research Center, where she focused on Arab-Christian-Muslim relations and faith-based diplomacy, and through the Pluralism Project at Harvard University, where she updated and composed reports for the online edition of On Common Ground, World Religions in America. She also worked as an educator in Abu Dhabi. Her interest areas include the implications of religious identity in pluralistic societies and the ways in which religion can be used as a tool through which to teach human rights in conflict prevention and reconciliatory capacities, particularly in the Middle East. Melissa holds a bachelor's degree in religion and Asian studies from Colgate University and a master of theological studies from Harvard Divinity School. Thank you for being with us. So now, to launch our discussion, we've asked each of you to offer a specific example of the challenges of diversity and inclusion in peace-building work as seen or experienced from your perspective. So I'm thinking perhaps we might just go in order, starting from this end. So if you'd like to start us off, okay. thank you. All right, well, I'll... Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor Eck, and thanks, thanks to you all. Um, it's a really uh, incredible honor for me to be here. Um, I actually, I've decided not to have any um, fears about dating myself. So um, I actually came to <laughs> Harvard College. I, I started, I arrived in Cambridge in September of 1982, which was nine years before the start of the Pluralism Project. And uh, back then, I can tell you as uh, one of four Indian Americans in the class of 1986, it's kind of amazing to believe considering the composition of Harvard now, but back then one of four Indian Americans in a class of 1600, Professor Eck was the only lone piece of uh, any touch with identity that, I, that we might have had. I remember taking Foreign Cultures 12 back then, which was sources of Indian civilization. I think um, back when there was still a core curriculum. So um, really grateful for Professor Eck for all she's done in terms of uh, bringing diversity and different um, perspectives into the, the Harvard undergraduate as well as uh, the whole entire Harvard experience. Um, I, you know, I, I talk about, I, I, I say that in the context of that timing because, you know, I, most of my academic career was at Harvard. I was at college and law school. And now I'm across, uh, across Cambridge at MIT, which is a relatively new experience for me. And it was interesting listening to the dean of students this morning talk about how Harvard prepares student leaders. And, you know, my experience certainly with Harvard was, you know, they, the idea was to prepare you for the corridors of power. And, um, and now that I'm at MIT, I realize what a different vibe it is, where the, the, the life there is about blowing up the corridors of power <laughs> and, um, and disruption. And so I'm going to kind of approach, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, uh, from, from various identities I'm, I'm having right now, uh, I'm experiencing right now. One, obviously, as a Hindu American, South Asian American, one of um, the early ones in the Harvard uh, experience. Uh, also, as somebody who's now somebody who's been in the corridors of power, so to speak, in some some respects, and as someone who's now involved in disruption and seeing the transformations that are going on in some of our um, institutions of power, and how I think that's going to affect the religious paradigm as well, and how and and the kinds of uh, leadership I think we need to be uh, cultivating. So uh, I. You know, I, I, I'll come back to where the circles and the squares come in, but you know, I, I think of institutions and kind of our traditional command and control 20th century institutions as kind of squares, you know, hi hierarchical, 
uh, command and control things. I think of kind of the, the, my spiritual quest as one of a circle, this idea of interdependence, transcendence, um, you know, getting beyond, you know, anyway. anyway. So, I mean, I, for me, the, the real pressing issues is how do we get from the circle within the square to the square within the circle? Mm -hmm. How do our institutions support the broader quest and the, the transformative quest? So that, I'm gonna come back to that hopefully and hopefully this will kind of tie together. I'm gonna talk, kind of say a few little stories which I hope start to begin to illustrate this. So, um, you know, back in 1982 when I entered Harvard College, as we've discussed in terms of uh, notions of identity, there really wasn't a religious identity as such. You were either, you know, Protestant or Jewish back then, to some degree Catholic. It was Protestant Catholic Jew within, within the Harvard um, scheme, very much similar to where the American tripartite had been for a while. Um, so for me, I think I'd grown up in Lincoln, Nebraska, of all places, you know, not a, exactly a, a hotbed of dealing with your identity issues. But, um, you know, the, but for me, uh, so much of feelings of difference, because there wasn't a conversation about spiritual identity or religious identity, were wrapped up in the racial the racial issues. Um, so much from the 60s, 70s, 80s was about racial justice. So that's, that became my quest. And as I went to law school, it was very much about civil rights, civil justice, racial justice, um, issues like that. So, um, you know, one of the things I, you know, so, so as I kind of, you know, as I thought about how to make a difference in the world, how, do one, how does one bring about social change, of course, I thought about it in the way that so many people in my generation thought about it was, was through law. We were inspired by Thurgood Marshall. We were inspired by this notion of, you know, the Supreme Court with all deliberate speed. That's the way you bring it about. Um, and so, you know, it was very much this kind of top-down, institution-centered, we deliver justice, and justice comes from on high. Um, a, a court proclaims it, and it somehow happens. Um, and of course, you know, being in the in the justice world, in this in the legal world, and Anarima knows this all too well. Um, it's it's often doesn't work. It's not that neat. It doesn't often work out that way. And it's you know very much bottom up as well as top down. And also, you know, as I started realizing, it's as much about it's not just about the head and the law of reason. And we heard the dean talk about Harvard preparing young minds for reason. It's not just about reason. It's also about the heart. And, um, and so then started realizing, well, maybe MLK had something to do with it too. It wasn't just Thurgood Marshall, it wasn't just the courts. Maybe there was something around, you know, uh, institutions, religious institutions, uh, social movements founded on the heart. And again, but really focusing on an institutional framework. We went from the legal institutions to religious institutions in some respects. And then I started realizing, you know what, maybe none of them. Maybe it wasn't really, it wasn't just, you know, the two of them. There was really, a, there was Rosa Parks. There was, there was individual small acts of courage and power and individual transformation that then triggered these institutions to fall into line. We could have a much larger conversation about this, which I'm, I won't get into. There's a lot of really interesting um, history about why was Rosa Parks' uh, single act of defiance the one that triggered the Montgomery bus boycotts. There were, in, that, in that year alone, there were three other African-American women that had been arrested for, not, for sitting down, for not taking the back of the bus. And why was it she, rather than others, that ended up leading to this? And there's a really interesting um, set of issues which we're working on actually at MIT around social mapping. And so it, you know, if you look at kind of the communities in which she was embedded and the cross-cutting nature of those communities, you start seeing why her arrest triggered a movement whereas others didn't. Um, an, a, a topic for another conversation, but 
uh, interesting set of, and I'll, I'll bring it back around when I talk about some of the work at MIT. So anyway, so that was kind of my initial framework. Um, very much race-related, that's the way in which one dealt with identity. I, I kind of did the whole legal thing, you know, became Solicitor General of New York, um, was, it turned out, the first South Asian American to argue a case in the US Supreme Court. And then, this was around 2001, ironically, um, I had an office when I was Solicitor General straight, looking out straight at the World Trade Center, watched the planes go in, watched the second plane, went straight across my office, my window, we were all watching because the first tower was burning at the time. Everyone had come running to my office, we're watching the second, um, we're watching, watching the whole scene, watch the second plane come across and go straight in, just not, not even realizing at the time, why was the plane so low? Like, well, how come we saw it go across? Just stunning, stunning things. But by then, actually, I had already um, decided to step down and kind of step away from the law. I, I was already feeling, I started getting into reading, thinking more broadly about issues of social justice, started reading all the works of Gandhi, started kind of connecting to my own heritage a little bit, and started thinking, like, maybe law wasn't the answer. And that's, the, you know, maybe law was coercive. And it may, have, it may have had to do something with the fact that I was working in an attorney general's office where, you know, when you have a hammer in your hand, every social problem's a nail. And you just start, you know, it's all about coercion and trying to get people to come to the table in that way. But starting to feel like there, there was a different way of possibly operating. Um, Anyway, so I had already decided, made this decision to step away, spent some time really focused, throwing myself into Gandhi's works, and then uh, out of the blue got a call to become involved in something called the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, which is a bipartisan federal human rights agency that focuses on religious freedom issues around the world. And right after 9-11, obviously, this became a very interesting and uh, both, both an interesting commission and you know, double-edged. When America goes around the world talking about religious freedom, that often has its own implications. Um, so anyway, so next story. So we're off. F f my first act as a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. We're off to Afghanistan to talk about the human rights guarantees in the emerging Afghan constitution. Um, and. Turns out a couple people on our commission dropped out of the trip. So it ended up being a Jewish woman, Felice Gare, and myself, a Hindu-American woman, in Afghanistan talking about religious freedom. <laughs> a lot of fun. Um, we meet with uh, the Chief Justice of the Afghan Supreme Court, this man, uh, Shinwari, who you know, is very polite, kind of humoring us as we're telling him about the international uh, covenants and the, the Declaration on Human Rights and the importance of religious freedom and right of freedom. Uh, anyway, so he's, he, at one point he kind of, he, he, he listens to us politely, then he says very strongly, you know, um, we have, we, I believe in everything you're saying. I believe in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. I believe in all 30 articles except for three. And we said, which three? And he said, the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech, and the rights of women. <laughs> and he was like, other than that, we're good. <laughs> and, um, and, and then he starts, then he starts thumping on this, Kelly, this big book, this Kelly Green felt book, which was the Quran. And he says, you know, we we don't need a constitution. This is our constitution. Um, in any event, that you know, kind of a humorous anecdote that, uh, you know. But, but it got me really thinking as we were focusing, and we ended up spending several years focusing on religious freedom issues in Afghanistan and working with, with um, the Afghanis in terms of their human rights guarantees within the Constitution. And I came away realizing that it's really religious freedom it, it, and the talk of religion in general becomes um, in some ways a very difficult concept. I started feeling increasingly it wasn't about the freedom of religion. It was the freedom of 
thought, conscience, religion, or belief, which is the language in the inter international instruments. It's the right of belief. It's the freedom to, to believe or not to believe, and the freedom to dissent from state-imposed orthodoxy. So it wasn't so much the, the religious freedom of people outside the mainstream um, religious groups, but it was also the rights of, of conscience of those within those groups to define what their religion meant. So suddenly I became increasingly conscious of the ways in which religious communities themselves and the institutions themselves stifle dissent. Um, so uh, just kind of, kind of flip through that Universal Declaration. So, so going to this metaphor of you know, this idea of allowing freedom of conscience or allowing this, this spiritual community to, to envelop within these institutions, I became much more interested in kind of how do these institutions uh, support the individual to, to move beyond those identities. So this kind of, we've talked a lot this morning about kind of religious identity as a new form of diversity. And I guess I just want to, this isn't a if or situation, but a yes and situation. I guess I'd like to suggest that in addition to encouraging different identities to come to the table, maybe we should think about redefining the table or shifting the table. So it's no longer about encouraging people to have an identification within a religious group, but to really pursue uh, their, the freedom of their conscience, which could be outside of, of, of an institution or outside of religion. Um, and in the same ways, I mean, there's certainly religions, religious institutions do not have a monopoly on conversations about what's in people's hearts. And uh, so, so just something I want to throw out. And I, something I, I mean, I, so let me kind of switch over a little bit to the technology hat, and I'll hopefully try and tie these back together somehow. I feel like we're, I feel like we're at an inflection point in history. Um, and, and this is in part due to technology. In the same way that the rise of the printing press led to the, you know, the decline of the Holy Roman Empire, the rise of the nation state, so many things, I feel like our, our, our exponential technology is leading to vast changes in our existing institutions of governance. Um, you know, we're seeing, you know, so the printing press led to that. We saw, you know, industrial revolution leading to the rise of capitalism, the, the 18th century liberal state. We saw railroads leading to the rise of the corporate farm. I feel like we're at a similar juncture. And I feel like what's starting to happen is we're getting what I call this exponential governance gap, where we have technology on the one hand growing in a certain way exponentially. And our, our governance frameworks and our governance institutions flatlined at best, some could say getting Earth, um, and kind of this increasing governance gap. And the question that's been kind of occupying me is how do we begin to fill that gap? And I think there's only so much we can do by kind of um, beefing up these institutions down here. I think that what's really going to happen in this, in, this in this interim place is I think we're going to need increasing forms of self-regulation and peer-to-peer -peer regulation. So kind of loose, fluid networks and increasing self-regulation. So I think the importance of people rooting themselves, grounding themselves, regulating themselves is going to take increasing importance. And I think religious institutions have a huge role to play in that, and other institutions as well. So um, anyway, so some of the work where I'm doing, I'm currently at MIT at the Media Lab, and working with this group called the Laboratory for Social Machines. And what we're really focusing a lot on is how to both map the social sphere. There's you know, so much of our, of our public sphere, which used to happen in coffee houses in the, in the 18th and 19th century, century institutions, then started happening in the halls of Congress and, and 
public institutions. So much of our public sphere is now happening in the digital space. Um, and you know, we, we've, we've obviously heard a lot about that. So how do you start mapping the ways in which communities are interacting with one another? Um, the laboratory, you're going to see this at the presidential debate coming up. The Laboratory for Social Machines, our group, is actually the partner for the Commission on Presidential Debates. And we're going to be mapping out in real time for the moderators kind of the, the, the conversation, the social sphere conversation that's going on. My dream is actually to eventually do that for religious communities, to start seeing kind of the linkages in, in the, the social conversation among communities. So that, that could be a project I would love, the Pluralism Project, to work with us on at some point in the future. But the Laboratory for Social Machines. Um, so, and what we're finding increasingly, and it's, this is no surprise to anybody who's been following this presidential debate, this presidential season, is you have lots of cocoons of conversation. Um, and there's not a lot of linkages among the various cocoons that are going on. And the, the social mapping very much bears that out. Um, so I guess as we talk about diversity, um, pluralism, what I want to suggest is that maybe we should be thinking about transforming that conversation so we're not just replicating by bringing new groups to the table. And yes, I, it, it, again, it's not, I'm not saying this is a yes and, this isn't a one or the other. Yes, we should be trying to build bridges between the communities, but maybe we should also be thinking about blowing apart the communities um, and really trying to engage in more fluid interactions with the people. And in this, I'm kind of inspired by the Gandhian vision, where he talked about um, you know, that, that ultimately progress happens through an oceanic circle whose center is the individual. He says the outermost circumference is not there to wield power, um, but this idea that you have kind of increasingly, um, you know, the increasing circles. Uh, and so when I think of like pluralism and diversity, I think of a set of communities that are kind of you know, separately you know, identified. And so I, I want to suggest that maybe we want, we, we, we want to encourage something more than just more rigid identifications or more, it, it's important to bring more identities to the table, but it's also important to think, try and blast through identity a little bit and find that interconnectedness um, and move towards more of this vision of oceanic circles. Um, just we'll mention this in a, in really quickly, there's this group, Service Space, which I've become very involved with, which I think is um, really leading this incredible ground up revolution where they're combining ancient inner technology with outer technology. Um, it's, it's very much that it started with four people that dropped out of Silicon Valley in the 90s, now have a following of millions of people around the world that meet in living rooms, that have both, that, that combine both the digital space and the physical space. Um, and it's based on kind of all of the all of the world's ancient traditions coming together in some ways. Um, it's not founded on any, but it's also it's not anti-religion, but it's very much drawing upon the strengths of each of the religions um, to 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 bring. And it's it's a growing movement which I'm a huge fan of. Um, anyway, so I wanted to just suggest that as part of the yes and conversation, that perhaps the pluralism project at 50 will be will move beyond the conversation about diversity and pluralism, and we'll we'll talk about a more transformative vision. Um, and one where we're not talking about identities, but we're talking about interconnection. So where the, the square is inside the circle. So that's the, that's the vision. Good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum, shalom aleichem. Uh, it's great to be here. It's an honor to be here. And I want to thank uh, Diana and also Dor Dorothy uh, for actually sort of being there uh, over many, many years uh, of being linked in different ways to the Pluralism Project. 
um, and I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful sort of opportunity to actually be able to celebrate this 25th anniversary. It's a rare thing in academia in many ways uh, to be able to do that. And it's a testimony, I think, to your strength and your consistency and, and, and not, you know, not giving up. Uh, and that is incredibly powerful, so thank you. Um, uh, uh, I've been asked to talk uh, about sort of obviously sort of one example and so I'll do a bit of theoretical uh, ideas uh, and then I'll apply them in some ways or look at how those apply to the context of one particular experience I've had over the last three years uh, which is to be part of the setting up uh, of a startup uh, in Vienna, Austria, uh, which is uh, an intergovernmental organization called KAISI, the King Abdullah bin Abdelaziz International Center for Interreligious and Intercultural Dialogue. So quite a long name, uh, but uh, an important center uh, that promotes primarily interreligious dialogue internationally um, and is constituted on the one hand by four governments and uh, also a board of directors of representatives of, of uh, five different religious uh, traditions. So very interesting new hybrid on the international community scene as far as I can tell. So let me start first, of course, we're at the university, so we'll define religion. Uh, you know, so uh, this is a really a wonderful thing to do, right? We talk about religion all the time, so I like to sort of use this particular definition. And in part because, you're, it, it, because it has two parts to it, right? Uh, it has the first part, which is all about sort of, okay, emergent complex adaptive network symbols of myth. That's why it's powerful, and that's why we need to talk about it. Um, and on the other hand, um, uh, that on the one hand, figures came out of feelings, things in acting ways that give meaning. Fine, you know, positive. And then there's the other side of it, the other side of the coin in a way, which is equally important uh, uh, and is to disrupt, dislocate, and disfigure every stabilizing structure. So I'd like to thank you for disrupting a little bit uh, the process here and being prophetic in that way uh, as uh, to use a Abrahamic sort of notion uh, of the prophetic sort of being often in this category. So that's just the framework. And then, of course, I want to define pluralism. I think that um, what happens in part of our problem with the word pluralism is the way we have a bit of a cacophony of meaning, of semiotic cacophony. Uh, and I think that that's because on the first level, you know, popularly, we use pluralism as if it's a synonym of diversity. Um, and that's really uh, like a, a major issue. And I've heard you know, all kinds of people, the academics included, using it that way. Uh, and at times, of course, there's another, so there are a variety of other possibilities in terms of interpreting the concept. Um, and I'd let, I, you know, ideologically, it has to do with you know, uh, the politics of what it means you know, to be uh, promoting a notion of pluralism in, in politics, which includes, of course, the legal realm. Uh, theologically, you know, the pluralism as a hermeneutical position on the diversity of truth claims and a whole sort of theology of religions, for example, that has emerged uh, in a variety of different uh, settings, uh, especially divinity schools, um, is important. And then philosophically, even broader than that, in a way, pluralism as an epistemological position that addresses multiple dimensions of diversity from a variety of subjective positions. And in that sense, you know, that particular one you know, in includes all of the sciences um, uh, 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 you know, in their diversity. And finally, the one which we don't really talk that much about, uh, but that's why we're here. I mean, we can do this here, right? Uh, we can talk about, in a way, sort of a spiritual angle to trying to understand what pluralism might mean from that angle. Um, and here is about sort of what I, say, I talk about, an internal and external dialogue that strives to balance the differentiating consciousness of various parts of self and others. Um, the diverse kinds, the diverse identities, and all of that that are part of who we are and how we interact with others, with the undifferentiated consciousness with ultimate reality, which is often at the core of much of what we call religious worldviews or spiritual worldviews. Um, and so to me, that in a way is also another way, another angle to define uh, uh, pluralism. So anyway, in the face of all of this, we 
dialogue within the self, we dialogue with other, and then we dialogue indirectly with a variety of others, capital O, which could be also translated with O in the transcendent sense. So the, the, the latter part sort of, you know, in a, in a way could be also bigger. Um, but what I find important to realize, and the, the pedagogy of learning is now sort of coming up, I think, with a lot of fascinating data on how we learn best when we combine sort of the right and the left brain, and in many ways we combine sort of the authoritative or, and versus the deliberative. Authoritative meaning sort of the teacher knows it best, you know, from the top, um, which is in a way a bit of what I'm doing now. Uh, but the Q&A will be dialogical, will be more deliberative, I hope. Um, and then, of course, sort of linked to that is evidence-based versus, uh, versus uh, 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 narratives. Uh, and we, we had lots of wonderful narratives earlier today, uh, and a few examples as well of people sort of rooting their, uh, their, their presentation, or at least in part, uh, in uh, evidence. Uh, and so I think the combination of the two is absolutely vital today, um, and it's a way in which we also see that social movements are, best, are most successful when they somehow manage to combine the two. And so part of the question is when we think of pluralism and peace building, is how are we able to provide both the evidence of impact together with the narratives of story, the powerful ones that actually touches our heart. So that, I think, is, is where um, uh, another dimension, theoretically, that I think is important to think about is that whether we talk about evidence and how we get there with all of the you know, subjectivities of gathering you know, uh, objective knowledge, so quote unquote, um, and on the other hand, narratives which are linked to personal stories that are always linked and related to a multiple form of identities, the question is how do these interact uh, in, in, in reality and the complexity of all of this uh, for our understanding of eventually a more peaceful world within which, of course, uh, we address in this case today the peace building part when there are tensions and conflicts. And understanding that identities don't, are just not just identities. They're always embedded in power dynamics. And it's that connection which I stress so much as, as being vital. Because when we do whatever kind of dialogue, we do more harmony or more sort of liberation forms of, of dialogue, we need to understand sort of how it works, how identities function, um, and, and references of minority versus majority within nation state or within sort of subregions or within the classroom or the walls that are here, and so on and so forth. That's kind of obvious. The changing versus the unchanging identities. There are certain things that I can't not change about. You know, who I am versus others that I can, um, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, the power and the powerless. So these are just some vectors. Uh, but I want to talk to them, talk, uh, give them names, um, and add to, 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 to those vectors uh, by actually thinking about the left and the right wing in terms of economic, uh, the structural dimensions, the decisional vector, as well as the ethical, moral. All of which, all of which are always present at the same time. You know, you don't, you, 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 so it's a question of which one to take at one point in time to deconstruct what's happening in terms of our identity dynamics. Well, if that's not enough, I'll add a few more. <laughs> so military here. I changed the colors uh, so that hopefully it's a little more sustainable. Um, then epistemological diversity. We often talk, of course, you know, of exclusivist versus pluralist. You know, so that would fall into what I would call the epistemological sort of vector or continuum. And then there's the influential one. I, I, well, I called it that for lack of a better word, but it really is in many ways the growing impact of media and different forms of media in our lives, how that influences us in so many different ways. Um, and I think there's a last one, educational, which I think you all know about. So when we understand sort of these power, uh, how multiple identities and power dynamics function, we understand that as walking, in the, you know, as individuals, we're right here, 
And at any point in time, I, I'm interacting with all kinds of people, but there's always these other sort of layers, a bit like you know, the Russian dolls uh, that are there. And, so, and it's all there at the same time, but it's just that I'm mostly not aware of all of these different layers. Uh, but they're there. And, and when, depending on what we stress in our uh, you know, pedagogical tool, tool bag, uh, we may bring out some of those dimensions, and it's incredibly important. And so, for example, the one that we often don't understand, and sorry for the French here, uh, I teach in French. So, but inter individual, interpersonal, interorganizational, interworldview, interspecies, and what I call intertranscendences. Uh, and so there's all of these dynamics that are happening all at once. Now, how does that work when you're looking at conflict situation? Uh, I'm using here sort of uh, Schirsch and Ledrack's model and understand sort of that a lot of these conflicts have a history that is very long. And therefore, one needs to project sort of resolutions uh, uh, or sort of transformation of societies also in longer terms uh, and understanding sort of the way in which an individual is part of a variety of different levels. So it's not just, it's too simplistic to say the individual and the collective. That's, you know, so here you, ha you have four dimensions. Uh, and of course, when you're in a crisis mode, uh, then you have to think about a variety of different ways to address these issues. So this I'm borrowing, of course, from Schirk and Ledrack. But I think it is important as, and now I'm moving to the organization, the example that I'm giving, that when you're looking at the establishment of an intergovernmental organization to promote interreligious dialogue, well, you know, you're, why is it emerging now? Well, it's because there's a crisis at the heart. And it's basically 9-11 in a nutshell. Uh, and so there's all kinds of things that have happened out of Saudi Arabia that has been the promoter of that. A soul-searching venture on the part of King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz in his effort to try to figure out sort of how to react to the fact that the majority of those who did uh, uh, the, the culprits of 9-11 per se at the act level uh, were from uh, were Saudi Arabian uh, nationals. And so therefore, you know, how does one respond to that as a leader who wears two hats, right? A political hat as a king of a nation state and of course, uh, as a custodian of the, the two holy mosques in terms of a title that is relating to, to the Muslim world in a broad sense, not that it's necessarily accepted by the whole world by any means, but at least there's the claim to that uh, uh, for many. So there's a history here. It's quite incredible to establish an intergovernmental organization in such a short time. It stems from a historical event, of course, right? Why is it that the Pope and, uh, you know, the, Pope and the uh, custodian of the two holy mosques never met for 1,400 years? <laughs> right? So, and why in 2008 and so on and so forth. So there's all of that sort of a more recent history which is fascinating for us studying religion and, and geopolitics. Um, and, uh, and so finally I'm moving to phase two that we are just now developing and at the core of the mission of phase two is this. And that's why I'm using it as an example. Um, because that's, at the end, those nine sort of religious leaders on the board, they said we don't want to do a theological you know, dialogue. We've done that, you know, been there, and the urgency on the ground is to figure out how to work together to help sort of uh, uh, bring some sort of betterment to a variety of different conflict uh, areas. So that's the framework in a way. We're, we've developed eventually a definition of dialogue. I'm skipping it because my time is soon up, um, uh, but it includes also a theory of change. Um, and then in terms of that, then we look at peace building in the following ways, and therefore, when you look at, if I use uh, Abu Nimr and Diamond's sort of notion here, uh, uh, you know, from prevention to the settlement uh, up the, there, or peacemaking at the top, all the way to post-conflict at the bottom, um, you see that most of the work that Kaisid is involved in is on this side and on that side. 
in part because uh, this requires a huge amount of mediation skills. And although at times there are some religious leaders who are uh, able to do it and willing to do it, uh, most of the time they're not yet capable. Uh, and so capacity building is required to get there in a number of different uh, contexts. And the four foci of the Kaisid at the moment is on Central Africa, Nigeria, where I'm going next week, um, uh, to Myanmar, and of course Syria and Iraq. These are a variety of roles that are being used for religious peace building, both intra-religiously and inter-religiously. Um, and that's what's unique in many ways in what religious communities can bring to the process of peace building. That's why I'm showing it. Uh, but at Kaisid in particular, the focus is on figuring out how do you bring those two groups together, whichever nation state they're based in, and from the local all the way to the international, although for the first three years we've been focusing more at the international and regional levels. Um, the strategic plan, there are two pillars, more important for our purposes. The second one, which is the one I'm related to, has to do with developing a knowledge hub, within which, of course, there's the peace map, which is the one that I've been helping develop. Uh, we're now online, accessible to all of you. You can find over 468 organizations working internationally, promoting interreligious dialogue in one form or another, mostly as a means rather than as an end. And so that's also, I think, new information that was not there a year ago. So that's the front page. Uh, finally, this is my last slide. Um, uh, what I find is, is that there are, I've learned so much in the last three years as being part of the team helping to develop this IGO, intergovernmental organization. And it's all around challenges. It's, it's really a roller coaster in many ways. Um, and so first, defining key terms and dialoguing about pluralism of definition, pluralism in the first sense of diversity of, of definitions. Second, it's really challenges creating diverse programs that are meaningful and sustainable for uh, religious leaders and policy makers um, at, again, at, at different levels. Uh, challenges around overcoming mutual suspicions across the religious and secular divide. I can tell you that working to promote interreligious dialogue in Vienna, Austria, uh, when you have the King Abdallah name in the, in the name of the center, major challenge, major challenge. Um, so, uh, then, challenge of creating and sustaining mutually beneficial partnerships of various kinds. Uh, it's easy to say partnership, it's great, you know, it's, it sounds great, but the actual applicability there falls, all, <coughs> falls in many ways within the, power, uh, the multiple identity and power dynamics. An NGO, even if it's big and international, is not an IGO. And the challenges of working together are really complex. Uh, uh, second to last, uh, challenges of creating meaningful and transformative programs. And finally, of course, the challenges that we know are there, assessing and evaluating the impact of the work in interreligious dialogue for peace building. So on that note, thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Diana, I want to join the chorus of thanks. <laughs> and um, like so many others, the, your ideas and your scholarship, but really the people that you have brought together through this project have changed my life and given shape and trajectory to my vocation. I'm so grateful and honored to be here, so thank you. I also want to bring greetings from the presiding bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, who's my boss. She's also a proud alumna of Harvard Divinity School. And she's thrilled that I'm part of this as well. A couple of years ago, um, I accompanied her to the Islamic Society of North America convention, the annual ISNA convention. 
And in the churches, there's this form of interreligious diplomacy where we go to each other's gatherings and we bring five-minute greetings and, you know, usually those spiral well beyond five minutes. But um, on this occasion, she had been invited with a reciprocal invitation as he had greeted our assembly in 2011 on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And she had been invited to do so at the convention in, um, what would that have been, 2014. And so when he came to our assembly in 2011, he gave this astonishingly beautiful call to partnership to our church. And it was received with a standing ovation. And so many people throughout the, the entire assembly remarked at how um, inspired they were and how they wanted to take that home and to really build upon partnerships locally with Muslims. But let's fast forward again to 2014. And we're in a taxi cab going from the airport in Detroit to the convention center. And she's going over her talking points for this five minute greeting. And I'm looking at my email and trying to decide whether I should alert her to the crisis that's unfolding. Some news outlets had published some stories while we were in the air with the uh, headlines something like, uh, Jimmy Carter and Lutheran Bishop keynote fundraiser for Hamas. Now, the people in our church who had seen this article started calling and emailing us, and they were very, in some cases, upset, and in other cases, quite confused. In fact, one woman was so confused, she wanted to know why Bishop Eaton was at a fundraiser for Hamas, <laughs> which, by the way, the ELCA would fully support. <laughs> but I tell you these two stories to indicate the ostensible gulf within our church. So as we think about anti-Muslim bigotry, it exists like racism and, and some of these other issues that have been brought up so eloquently today. It exists within, and we have to tend to that even as we address anti-Muslim bigotry in society. I personally committed to responding to every single one of those calls and emails. And I quickly started to regret that. <laughs> I lifted up the church's commitments to interreligious relations dating back to our predecessor bodies. Our church was formed in 1988 as a merger of several Lutheran churches. I shared this decade-long history of our relationships with several Muslim organizations that really was our church's response to um, September 11th, 2001. I offered information about the educational resources that had been commissioned by the church for use in the church to learn about Islam and to engage in dialogue and, and um, other kinds of relationships. I gave examples of the kinds of partnerships that we'd been a part of with Muslim Americans on several issues, including poverty and gun violence and religious freedom. And I defended against the notion that Islam is a religion of violence, that ISNA is a terrorist organization, that Muslims hate women or non-Muslims or Jews or on and on and on. But perhaps most importantly in those calls and emails, I spoke of our Lutheran commitment in a multi-religious society to love our neighbors, using as a basis Luther's interpretation of the Eighth Commandment in his small catechism. Well, it, admittedly, my responses weren't always met with understanding or appreciation, and 
I wasn't always the epitome of patience and goodwill, and a few times I thought I should call Diana and beg for her to take me back. <laughs> you know, ecumenism or intra-religious relations, I think in some ways is so much more difficult because it's family. I could say more, but I'll, I'll stop there. So what all of this made really clear was that our church was in dire need of a conversation about our interreligious calling and commitments admittedly well behind the curve on this. And so just uh, last month at our assembly in New Orleans, the presiding bishop called the entire church into this conversation. Um, as Diana had mentioned earlier, we published a book of real life case studies from Lutheran ministry context, congregations, campus ministries, um, our work in communities, and it's entitled Engaging Others, Knowing Ourselves, A Lutheran Calling in a Multi-Religious World. <coughs> Here are some examples of the kinds of cases. Will a Lutheran church say yes to a request from a Muslim community to use their space for worship? If not, why not? And if yes, which part of the church would be the appropriate place? What about how Lutheran and Muslim chaplains work together in other parts of the world to build peace? What about Lutheran college students who are encountering instances of Islamophobia or other kinds of religious bigotry? How do they engage that effectively and defend their colleagues and classmates? So these cases get at real practical and theological issues, but we also hope that they'll be used to build relationships that will enhance our capacity to address anti-Muslim bigotry or other kinds of religious bigotry. We continue to address all of this in a three-dimensional strategy. Education about and relationship building with our neighbors or seeking mutual understanding, partnership with our neighbors or seeking common ground, and advocacy on behalf of and with our neighbors or seeking peace and justice for all. And for us, this framework, of course, operates according to a Lutheran understanding of theology and doctrine so that education is undertaken with an awareness of our limits of understanding God, who, as Luther teaches, is both hidden and revealed. Partnership is undertaken with a Lutheran sense of vocation so that we are called to love and serve the neighbor as a response to the freedom we've been given in Christ to serve the neighbor. And advocacy is based on interpretation of the eighth, as I mentioned earlier. And while we have a particularly Lutheran way of looking at this, of course our interreligious peace building work is best done in coalition. And those are spaces where not only do we learn about others, but we learn about ourselves. And to give you one example, we're one of the founding members of the Shoulder to Shoulder campaign, which you may know was one of the efforts um, that was launched in the fall of 2010 as a response to anti-Muslim bigotry, as we heard from Reverend Byer this morning that context there of the so-called Ground Zero Mosque controversy and Terry Jones in Florida threatening to burn the Quran. In recent years, we've also built up another, uh, a, a number of um, other kinds of internal relationships, building from the bottom up and from all sides to reinforce the leadership of our presiding bishop and our synodical bishops. And so we've, um, asked, our, um, we've asked our synod bishops to write op-eds and to participate in other forms of public engagement in instances where there is bigotry or where it seems to be breeding. 
We've also invited um, ecumenical and interreligious re representatives to provide leadership. We've engaged with pastors to build um, capacity and relationships on the ground, such as the relationship that Imam Salih has with his uh, Lutheran counterpart in Cedar Rapids. It's a great story if you haven't read it. And so, let's see, I want to skip ahead here. Um, but our presiding bishop's leadership is pretty important. She issued a, a, a letter, to, an open letter to the American Muslim community right after San Bernardino last year. And this, this not only spoke an important word to our Muslim neighbors, but it spoke an important word to our church about where our commitments stand. And the response was highly positive, not just from Muslims, but also from many folks within the church who said this was really an important word that not only I needed to hear, but then I needed to pass on to my neighbor. And at our assembly last month, a resolution was adopted um, commending dialogue, opposing Islamophobia, and, and encouraging cooperation. So my point is that the church has really made for itself a mandate in all of this. We have a newly appointed task force that will develop an interreligious vision statement. And um, I, I mention this because um, sustainable peace building requires strong policy. And we need to find ways to engage a large segment of our people in the pews who either don't see our witness against anti-Muslim bigotry as relevant to their lives, or worse, who think engaging with Muslims is a direct affront to their faith. So in those phone calls and emails, the single most um, helpful comment I could make for folks who were just really riled up was to refer them to our constitutional commitments. And so um, I think that if we think about the clear encounter of commitments, Diana, this requires clearly articulated commitments. In 1991, the same year as the project was born, the ELCA adopted an ecumenical policy statement, which in the text itself anticipated the need to develop this interreligious statement I just mentioned. It's taken us 25 years, mere blink of an eye in church years, don't ask me what the, what the number there is, to come to recognize that this rapidly changing landscape demands a reassessment of who we are and a rearticulation of that and then how we're called to be with our neighbors. And this project, and Diana, you as a leader, have given us a prophetic witness. You've given us research, resources, and methodologies to assist with this. And we look forward to the next 25. We need you and we need all of you to do this. Thank you. Good afternoon. And thank you, Diana, and everyone for being here. I feel like it's coming home to a family with extended relatives who I'd never met before. And it's <laughs> kind of exciting. Yes. Um, really, a lot of faces who I've heard about but hadn't interacted with before directly. So thank you all for being here. So I work at the US Institute of Peace, uh, which, for those of you who don't know, is congressionally founded and funded. We were founded in 1984. Um, President Reagan signed us into being, um, interestingly. And we've evolved over the years from more of a think tank to what we consider to now be a think and do tank. Um, we get to think in the office, and then we act and practice in the field, um, interacting with 
those who are building peace on the front lines. The religion part of what we do is a tiny shop, um, but it's also a critical one and one that's been part of our founding um, and has always been ingrained, at least in the back of what we do, um, if not formally through the tiny shop of religion and peace building now, or religion and inclusive societies, um, which I think is really important in this discussion of pluralism. Um, so a couple of people today have already asked me about the definition of peace building um, and what we use at USIP. I won't read the whole definition, it's a little onerous, but part of it includes, it is a transformation towards more manageable, peaceful relationships and governance structures, long-term process of addressing root causes and effects, reconciling differences, normalizing relations, and building institutions that can manage conflict without resorting to violence. At the same time, within the religion side of what we're doing, we are working with religious actors and institutions around the world. We partner with them um, because we recognize that they are really on the front lines of conflict and at the same time, they're working at the deepest levels of their communities. Um, they are leaders and they're often informal leaders. Um, importantly, when looking at religious actors um, internationally, we aren't only working with the male elite, the elderly male elite. Um, we are recognizing the all-encompassing identities of what a religious actor might be, um, including the role of women um, and youth. So I'd like to share with you a couple stories. One is about a gentleman, a youth leader, called Ahmed. He's from Uganda. In July 2010, he was watching the World Cup at the Al Jazeera Stadium in Kampala when Al-Shabaab attacked. He didn't know what happened at the time. He felt an explosion. He saw things flying through the air. He didn't know what was happening. He was disoriented. And then he went blank. He woke up two days later reading the news and was trying to make sense of what had happened. He knew he was still alive. He didn't know who else was still alive. And he found out that they were involved and claimed responsibility for what was their first international attack. Um, this was something external. Al-Shabaab are not, are not part of our community here. The next day, he found out that indeed they were, the, those who carried out the attack were indeed from Uganda. Not only were they Ugandan, but they were from his very own community. He went to school with the men who were involved in plotting the attack. He went to the same mosque as them. Suddenly, this was a conflict in his own mind. These were people who he considered brothers. Where had they gone wrong? They couldn't deny anymore that this was something that was outside, that wasn't affecting them internally, because indeed it was. It was shaping who they were as people. And um, as Catherine was saying, it's it's a lot more challenging when you're dealing with an issue within your own family, and that's very much how he viewed it. So rather than ignoring it, trying to get by and keep going with his own life, he paused. He realized that this was a time when he had to reflect, and he had a deep responsibility, he felt, for the role of young male Muslims in his community, in a country where the Muslim population is only about 13 or 14 percent, the majority of the population being Christian, and especially after that attack, there was a huge rise in Islamophobia. 
So he founded an organization that works with Muslim youth um, to create a safe space for them to have dialogue, to address what their own concerns are, um, including about Islamophobia, um, including how to engage with the other. Um, he is now viewed as, oh, he's something like 30 years old. He's already viewed as a world expert on engaging the community, a local community, in countering violent extremism efforts. But he's still committed to working with his community in Uganda. Um, he's, he will lecture at universities and um, he's partnering externally to an extent to increase the capacity and build resources, but at the same time his focus is completely domestic. So he's one of the youth leaders who we at USIP were pleased to engage with in a program that we organized last spring with the Office of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. The program focused on youth, religion, and resilience, and it brought together 28 youth leaders from 13 conflict areas who, like Ahmed, have had incredible close encounters dealing with violent extremism in their own communities. Another whose story I won't share in full um, for the sake of time, but um, whose work is similarly remarkable, Mariam from Afghanistan, a country that's seen four decades of war. She was a refugee, she was raised in Pakistan primarily, and she came back to Afghanistan to build bridges. She works in Kabul at a theater, the Bond Street Theater, and she brings youth groups from different towns and cities around Afghanistan, um, and she intentionally will bring the Tajiks with the Hazara, with the Pashto, these are communities that haven't necessarily engaged with one another, but they have the collective identity of being Afghan, of being Afghan and of having lived through literally generations of war. And by having these um, workshops in the space of a theater, um, she's encouraging role playing, and at the same time, she's humanizing the other for the youth. And she herself is also a youth leader. So these youth leaders who we brought together raised many questions among themselves. Um, this was interestingly and intentionally, I think, a space that was created to help them recharge together. And they recognized that they weren't operating alone, that they themselves make up a generation of young religious peace builders um, who need to work together in order to really be effective on a global scale. There were several questions that they asked of His Holiness in our two days of dialogue with him. And many of these questions are remaining unanswered. His Holiness deflected in, to a large extent and said, look in your own communities, um, which has value, I think. Um, at the same time, a lot of these questions have been raised with other groups that we've met with and interacted with. Um, but some of the questions that the youth were, acting, were asking um, we're dealing with issues of diversity. How can we engage the older religious leaders in our community? How can we partner effectively with an older generation? How can we partner with government? How can we better work with those who don't believe in our work, who come from different perspectives, who have otherized us as youth? Another event that uh, we've convened at USIP um, um, is on religion and countering violent extremism, or CVET. We use the lingo in DC. Mm -hmm. 
they've asked similar questions. These are religious actors who tend to be a little bit older, men and women, who are also from conflict areas. We brought them together for the first time two years ago, and we put them in a room and said, you're from around the world working in zones of conflict. What is it that you as religious actors want from the international community to help you to do your work more effectively? They came up with a list of recommendations that they then presented to policymakers. We brought them to UNGA and they presented there and then we took their recommendations and we'll be having a workshop in Mombasa in um, a few weeks um, with different religious actors but building off of those lessons learned. But some of the outcomes from that event and what we'll be addressing in this upcoming symposium in Mombasa are themes that have been brought up time and again today in the American context. Recognizing the role of religious actors and the role of religion and indeed pluralism, it's important to understand the, necess the necessity of communication. And what does that mean today when this world is forcing us to be neighbors, whether we want to or not, with someone on the opposite side of the globe? So how can religious actors better communicate with the youth, for example? How can we, in the peace-building community, better communicate what it is that we are doing on the ground in conflict areas? How can we better bring those messages back to those who, can, who have the power to take action here? Another topic that will be very much addressed at our symposium in Mombasa is how can the religious sector better engage with the security sector, the policing issues that we've highlighted several times today. These issues aren't unique internationally, they aren't unique to the US. So I think when we're looking at pluralism and what pluralism means today, it's increasingly important to be looking outside as well as inside for models. No longer can we be the US Institute of Peace going outside and saying these are the American models that work when our partners on the ground will question that um, and understandably and say, well, what are you doing in your country that's working right now when we're looking at the news too? So I think it's important that this be a dialogue that goes both ways, that some of the best practices um, are shared internationally and that it's really recognized as an international uh, pluralism and not just internally focused, but globally focused as well. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for those very rich and thought-provoking presentations. Um, we had planned to have a period of a bit of conversation among you all, but I'm wondering um, if we might just proceed to questions because our time is running short. Will we be going just to a quarter of or going a five minutes past or so? 4.50, okay, that sounds excellent, great. Very good then, we get the best of both worlds, we like that. So we want to open up to you and see if you have questions for our panelists and what those might be. Would anyone, anybody have a question? Yes? Uh, yes, uh, Dan Carmen with CNN. Uh, this sort of uh, is a reference to CDE in particular and, and this can, I guess, might be 
open up the bowl. Um, but, but, but just the, the comment that uh, many, uh, or I won't say many, but a few Boston leaders are uh, <laughs> shared a critique uh, of CBE as um, uh, that your faith ha uh, presents, or the propensity of violence, that, that, that the framework of it, it, it is such, and, and I was wondering if the USIP and, and others were, were able to address it since uh, a, a large portion of our community is, is uh, in, in contention with, with such uh, framework. <laughs> sure. Um, is this on? CVE is a term that's used as the term of the day, I think. Um, it's looking at bigger issues of building peace in a way that um, goes against the conflict in the world. It's something that USIP has been doing for much longer than that term existed. Um, internally, I can say that we are still having many conversations and debates about how exactly to define CVE as one subject area. It is certainly sensitive. Um, and I was at a conference in Nairobi a few months ago. And once again, it was on uh, uh, defying extremism was the title of the conference. And once again, we went back to the drawing board um, unintentionally at the beginning. And the first half day was spent only trying to come to consensus on what does countering violent extremism mean? What does it mean domestically? What does it mean internationally? What does it mean for local stakeholders versus governments? Um, so I think it's fairly complicated and it's still being parsed out. In the back, I'm sorry. I only caught part of the question. So, do we do what with other U.S. So I personally do not work on the Africa team. I'm housed in a thematic area, and most of my work, while we may travel to parts of Africa, is not focused there. Um, so I'll preface it with that. Um, I will say that when we work internationally in any country, um, we normally would um, inform or alert our counterparts um, at the State Department um, in uh, other agencies within USG, and they may be aware that we're there and what we're working on. Um, all of our finance, all of our funding is um, federal, so it's either from Congress directly or it's in the form of interagency agreements from USAID or State Department normally. Um, so they would normally be involved as a partner um, and or a donor in some capacity. <laughs> Maybe to an extent. <laughs>
Well, that might be another vocational chapter. I, <laughs> that would be quite an interesting thing. I was speaking in particular to a policy of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. So we have an ecumenical policy that 25 years ago was adopted by the church. And in the, at the very end of it, it says, uh, there is an urgent need for a similar, a complementary interreligious policy to, to be developed. So 25 years later, we're getting around to that urgent need. Um, and so for us, that is a matter of addressing both the theological and practical realities of interreligious relations and, um, and articulating our commitments, not just for ourselves, but for our neighbors as well. I'll leave that other question to those who are involved in government. <laughs> I'd like to follow up on that in one sense. Um, you know, you and uh, the presiding bishop going to ISNA and uh, checking your uh, email inbox and finding that headline of uh, presiding bishop and Jimmy Carter keynote fundraiser for Hamas. That's a broader question of how it is that you or other groups, uh, and Preeta, you may have something to say about this as well, uh, respond to the idea that ISNA um, is somehow uh, you know, doing a fundraiser for Hamas uh, or any other group like this, because that accusation, of course, is uh, one that doesn't come out of the blue. It comes from rather specific people who want to uh, sort of pin those, uh, those relationships upon the Islamic Society for North America or in other groups as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you had to respond to all of that. Uh, what do you say? I mean, that's a real educational task. Yeah, I think there were two sides to the approach that I, I took. Well, no, maybe three. Um, one was the relational side. We know these folks well. They're our neighbors and partners. We've been working with them for a long time, and we can vouch for them. Then the, the second aspect um, being a, a legal approach. Our, you know, our own constitution says these are important commitments and relationships. And then the other related aspect of that was we consulted with ISNA's legal counsel to get the language that they were sharing in, in specific response to those allegations. And we saw that, I mean, from a faith-based perspective, we saw that as defending and speaking well of our neighbor, which is Luther's language of interpreting the Eighth Commandment. And, um, and so there were a couple of instances where I um, found myself on the other line with, a, with a, um, a legal expert and, you know, had to bring in our legal counsel to provide some interpretation. But again, those were resources well invested as far as our partnership is concerned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if I may add an anecdote to this, because my first task as researchers for the Pluralism uh, Project was to actually go and attend the ISNAC conference, annual conference right. in Chicago. And so, uh, and I recall going specifically to the meeting of the finance committee um, because I was curious mm -hmm. about, okay, well, what do they talk about? And it was on purpose one of those meetings that was open mm -hmm. to the broader membership, you know, because it's an umbrella organization. So there's lots of people in different kinds of organization within ISNA. And I remember that really to this day that the, the salient point of the meeting over now, not the whole hour, but was the discussion as to what do we do with external sources of funding 
and you know, and do we accept or don't accept? And if we accept, you know, what are our rules? And we we need to control everything. And they, they were really the leadership was very adamant about the the the, the, the absolute necessity, the clarity of controlling everything. Um, and so it was not dictated. They won't, you know, be dictated from outside what to do with those funds if they decide to accept them. Mm -hmm. So, so it's just an anecdote, yeah. but uh, mm -hmm. it goes back to 1992. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a, you know, a recent new. thing. Yeah. It's nothing new. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Any of our other panelists have a comment on that, Prida? Not, um, not specifically on that. I, I mean, I can talk about another incident that is analogous, which was in, involves a lot of Hindu groups that were fundraising or, or accused of fundraising in support of Hindu nationalist movement in India. Yeah. So similar things. When I was actually US chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, that was actually when, when at the time, Gujarat State Minister Modi, um, now Prime Minister, was trying to, had been invited to speak in the U.S., and there was the, the whole conversation about whether his visa should be allowed because he had been accused uh, when he was state minister in Gujarat of uh, turning, turning the other way when there was a lot of violence against Muslims in India. There was, um, you know, there, there was, and there was an issue of whether the state government in India at the time, his state government, was complicit in the violence in, in either they supported it or they refused to prosecute or they kind of allowed the violence to occur. Um, anyway, this was, this was a huge a huge issue. That what ended up happening was that the, the U.S. State Department decided they were going to, they pretty much decided they were going to deny him the visa. It was the first time they were invoking a provision under the International Religious Freedom Act, which allows them to deny the visa of anyone who's been implicated in religious violence around the world. It was the first invocation of that. They turned to us as the commission to ask, what do you think about this? I happen to be chair, a Hindu American, <laughs> and um, I, I, we ended up looking strictly at what, what because we're not a fact-finding body, we didn't, you know, we couldn't say what had happened in India, but we looked at the, at the state reports, the Indian national reports at the time, um, the Supreme Court and various, the Indian human, Rights Commission, and they had found that his government was complicit, um, the, India's own fact-finding bodies. So we said, citing those bodies, the, the legal rationale is justified. Anyway, I received uh, hundreds of death threats, which continue to this day, um, because of the decision to deny the visa, which, um, anyway. <laughs> Did you have a question? They deny the very existence of that group because they don't follow their path uh, for years to come. Uh, that would also be true. I was just wondering, uh, like you know, you've got somebody who's running your program who's head of the you know Saudis. How do you get the? She has to come to the table. Who would say, well, we can't deal with that. Well, I you know I, I talked about it as a funny anecdote. I actually considered it. Um, we considered it at the time a significant, you know, move forward in the sense that Afghanistan was a signatory of the UN, de the UN Declaration on Human Rights. The fact that the Chief Justice uh, was facetiously but publicly stating that he agreed with 27 of the 30 articles. I mean, the fact that he would publicly say that I don't agree with three of them was pretty significant in terms of putting him a little bit in a corner given that he was bound to support all 30 
particles. So just even having that conversation um, and having him be in a position where he had to articulate what he agreed with and he didn't agree with allowed the conversation to go forward. And subsequently, you know, in meetings after that, we would remind him and others that, you know, there are 30 articles that you've signed on to. Um, and it's nice to say you don't agree with three, but, you know, it, it ended up kind of putting him in a little bit of a box that ended up being useful in terms of the subsequent conversations. Well, can we one interpret that as, you know, personally he didn't agree with three, but we as, uh, you know, Afghanistan have signed on to all yeah. 30. I mean, we have that complexity in many places. Mm -hmm. Patrice. Um, I just want to say that in terms of Qaisid, yes, uh, you know, the two top positions in the Secretariat are held by uh, Saudis, um, but, um, but the rest of the staff, except for two at a lower level, are international from all over the place, right? So the dynamic is a very interesting one, and whenever it's about developing programs of interreligious peace building, um, then we're looking at um, both the intra-religious dynamics of where we're going. So, for example, there was a social media training in Iraq just a month ago uh, with uh, 70 folks from literally all of the different regions of, uh, of Iraq, uh, diversity of ethnicity, tribes, uh, religion, sub-religion, minority religion, and so on and so forth. And the whole point was, was to, to make sure that this intra-diversity, in this case Islamic, Sunni, Shia, I mean, given how many people have died because of that tension in Iraq in particular, um, was absolutely vital. Uh, and so, um, so yes, I mean, it, you know, there are ways in which, and in fact a necessity, to approach sort of that tension, the Sunni Shiite tension, because worldwide we know that the most, the greatest number of victims uh, in the name of religion, um, uh, of, of extremist violence, uh, are Sunnis and Shiites. Uh, and so this is really where uh, we need to address that, and we try our best to include it in those regions where it makes sense to do so. Personally, personally, I think that it's really like on the agenda of the international community, big, big time. Um, and you see sort of a rise of interest in UN agencies across the board uh, for figuring out sort of how to in involve more religious leaders in the work they're doing, sometimes often very naively because they're just at the beginning of the process of figuring out the complexity of, of how religious communities are organized transnationally and therefore sort of end their, you know, they're, they're being very subjective depending on which conflict we're talking about. Um, and so, um, but the willingness in general of major UN agencies and a number of other um, IGOs is, is growingly uh, uh, involving sort of uh, inter uh, high-level religious leaders, among others, you know, to uh, to address those those different nature, uh, sorry, different na different kinds of, of conflicts. Sorry. Thank you all, uh, Kristen Stone King Fellowship of Reconciliation. Thank you for your fascinating presentations, and thank you, Diana, and all the pluralism staff putting together the conference. I wondered if you would comment on the dynamic in peace building where um, power actors, governments, university administrations, police departments, will invite in faith leaders or um, uh, religious professionals from uh, university staff or peace building professionals mm -hmm. to mediate or negotiate a conflict um, with the sort of tacit expectation that the peace building means maintaining the status quo mm -hmm. or enacting 
to diffuse the conflict rather than um, to come in with uh, capacities, particularly as pluralists, to help transform to a positive peace where there's more justice and more freedom. And, and how I think as peace building professionals we can get um, tacitly co-opted and how you guard against that and how you transform it into a positive peace. Oh, we were adding to that. Yeah, just to, to add to that, I'm, I'm thinking of even a step further in the case, again, of the police department that we deal with, the phenomena of, of sort of cherry-picking religious leaders from a particular faith, and that, that not only gives them the appearance of, of having solved the problem, but actually ramming massive conflicts between, in, in the community itself. I mean, the classic sort of divide and conquer under, under, under the name of a sort of Any comments on how that works out in practice, grappling with those issues? I mean, I, uh, briefly, it just depends on which conflict, where, uh, which level. Uh, you know, so I, this is why I'm kind of like at loss to begin to answer because of, of I, immediately I can sort of go through so many different approaches which would almost be contradictory in, in, in the solutions, you know, to... Well, so, for yourself at the intergovernmental level, um, when you enter a situation as a consultant, do you set up ground rules or set up, you know, a framework such that it's clear that the hope and the trajectory of the process is towards specific goals around transportation <coughs> or more freedom? A, a practical example, Saturday night I'm going from here to Abuja, and uh, part of what is being done is to strengthen uh, a, a faltering uh, interreligious platform at the Nigerian level, um, which uh, Religions for Peace had begun to sort of uh, put on the ground a few years back. Um, and the tensions, especially with the rise of attacks and extremism, you know, have made it m very difficult for this particular uh, platform to function. Um, and so now we're working with Religions for Peace, uh, as I said, in order to go there. And next week's meetings, four days, it's going to be very interesting methodologically. We're going to actually have, in the same hotel, we're going to have about 40 Christian leaders and 40 Muslim leaders, and they will never meet officially. Mm. Because they agreed that they would be in the same hotel, and of course many of them know each other anyhow, so they'll interact over lunch and the meals. But each of the communities, you know, the plurality of Christian voices and plurality of Muslim voices need to get their act together before they can go to the next step of meeting together officially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, a, I think, a good example, right? Mm -hmm. so. Well, thanks to all. I'm sorry we are, have to end here because we've overstayed our time already. But really, thank you so much. It's been incredibly, incredibly informative. And you've pointed to a landscape of a lot of change, many challenges. Um, but you've encouraged us to think outside the box in some new ways and be aware of the necessity of looking to models um, from all the people we work with at all levels that may be able to inform doing our work better. So thanks very much to all of you and to you as well. Thank you.